Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS, where Kathleen Taylor writes The Limits of Love Human Personality Under Assault from Advanced Dementia, from the 2nd of June 2023 issue. Kathleen Taylor is a freelance science writer affiliated to the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at the University of Oxford. Her books include Dementia, A Very Short Introduction, 2020, and The Fragile Brain, The Strange, Hopeful Science of Dementia, 2016. According to the Office for National Statistics and the World Health Organization, dementia is the top cause of death in the United Kingdom and the seventh globally. No current treatment can cure, stabilize or prevent it, and its care costs are high, as governments with ageing populations are increasingly aware. Yet research and charitable funding still lags behind resources for other leading causes of death. In the UK, research funds for cancer in 2018-19 were five times greater than for dementia, and charitable giving for cancer was ten times greater. Faced with these realities, researchers and charities have been trying for decades to raise awareness of dementia. They situate it firmly in a medical framework, as a set of symptoms, of which poor memory and cognitive impairment are the best known, caused by diseases that damage or destroy brain cells. Dementia can be a temporary effect of other brain illnesses, but the most common diagnoses, Alzheimer's, frontotemporal and vascular dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies and mixed forms, involve progressively severe loss of brain matter, neurodegeneration. These conditions usually occur in older people, though in rare cases younger adults and children can be affected. Framing dementias in terms of neurodegeneration offers the hope of understanding what causes them and thus of clinical breakthroughs that might prevent, alleviate or even ideally reverse the damage. Some public figures have also begun to be more open about dealing with the condition and there is much talk of people living well with it. The aim of all this positivity, apart from fundraising, is to lessen public fear and to encourage more kindly attitudes to people with dementia, to reduce the stigma of the condition and so provide better help for sufferers and carers. Helping to raise awareness of dementia and specifically of how it affects carers are Susan Elkin's The Alzheimer's Diaries, Sandeep Jahar's My Father's Brain and Dasha Keeper's Travellers to Unimaginable Lands. All three books are informative, insightful, and enriched by the hard-won wisdom of experience. Kipper is a clinical psychologist who works with carers, and Jahar is a cardiologist whose father developed dementia. Both work in the US. Elkin is a writer from the UK, whose book is based on the blog she maintained from the date of her husband's diagnosis to his death just two years later. They are all well-educated professionals, and as such, one might think, they have it relatively easy. Jahar and Elkin can afford to hire care assistants. Keeper has the shield of a therapist's detachment. Well, maybe. 
yet the suffering detailed in all three books refutes the notion that a more privileged background somehow mitigates the anguish of looking after a person with dementia. Elkin compares it to looking after a baby. Only most babies have a future beyond complete dependence, and no shared past to point up the contrast. They're also a lot smaller and easier to manage than an agitated adult. They don't hide things, make dire financial choices, wander off and get lost, or fail to recognise the people looking after them. There are reasons why societies have always dreaded serious conditions that affect the brain. Like other terminal illnesses, dementia progresses from living fairly well through the build-up of symptoms leading to diagnosis to just managing, not coping, then the dreadful last stages, double incontinence, loss of speech and movement, unresponsiveness, unconsciousness. Long before the end, however, carers learn two brutal lessons. The first is that chronic illnesses don't unfurl smoothly, whether towards recovery, death or stagnation, and every case is unique to the person who has it. One day can be good, the next full of pain. Symptoms come and go, with no traceable cause or pattern. Plans become necessarily tentative, and carers may wake each morning not sure which version of their loved one they will get that day. In dementia, even late on, there can be moments of connection that seem to bring the person back. Yet at other times there may be paranoia, aggression, or shocking insults. Keeper reports a much-admired mother telling her loving, self-sacrificing son, You're a failure. You've always been a failure. The second lesson is that brain disorders involve the whole body. People dread losing their powers of memory, foresight and reasoning, but this is often accompanied by incapacitating fatigue, hallucinations and delusions, changes in the ability to control movements and emotional volatility, together with bewildering, often humiliating changes in bodily systems, from sensory perception to gut function to sleep. No wonder carers end up exhausted. Positivity will only take you so far. One advantage of comparing three books by authors whose cultural and socio-economic backgrounds do not, shall we say, reflect the full human range available, is that it illustrates the importance of other variables in how dementia care is experienced. Some are familiar. Struggles with healthcare and welfare systems feature in all three books, as does the weight of admin, the relentless amplification of existing family tensions, the sheer difficulty of working, travelling or socialising when someone with dementia is involved, and the extent to which formerly easy chores swell into wearying ordeals. Less well-known, perhaps, is that there is more help available for home carers in the early stages of dementia than later on, when the symptoms are worse, but the person has not yet reached the end stage of hospitalisation, as Elkin's husband does, or hospice-style home care, Jahar's father. Some families choose a care home, but that decision brings its own problems, financial and emotional. Another feature of these books is how their authors use the science of dementia. All three turn to it for explanations, but in different ways. Keeper ranges widely through the relevant classic texts by, among others, Alois Alzheimer, Oliver Sacks on neurology, Daniel Schachter on memory, and Daniel Kahneman 
on cognition. Her subtitle, however, specifies the hidden workings of the mind, not the brain, and rightly so. What neuroscience she mentions adds little of value to the psychological statements. Her most brain-relevant source is Alzheimer himself, but she barely mentions the leading hypothesis in dementia research that beta-amyloid, one of the two abnormal proteins that Alzheimer found in his patient, Auguste Dieter's brain, causes neurodegeneration, let alone any of the nuances of that theory or its emerging rivals. This is not a criticism. Keeper's book is about storytelling by and for people, not about what goes wrong in neurodegeneration. She wants her clients to understand how the stories they tell themselves about what is happening to their loved one can make things worse, not better. And she wants all of us to understand how prone we are to misunderstand and confabulate, even if we do not have dementia. Her work is about finding better stories to help carers manage their emotions so that they can change how they react to the provocations of their role. She refers to prominent scientists, but also enlists literature, Sartre, Beckett, Chekhov, Melville, as a guide to thinking better about the social dynamics of dementia care. Jahar's book engages more deeply with the science. Chapter 6 of My Father's Brain gives us a brief history of dementia, then moves on to discuss Alzheimer's wonderfully humane description of Auguste Dieter's symptoms, which deserves to be better known, though it is now thought that Dieter may not actually have had Alzheimer's disease. It would have been nice to see more on two big recent developments in dementia science, the realisation that environmental factors such as air pollution really matter, and the turn to genetics, which is flooding the research literature with news of genes and proteins that future drugs could target. There is a simple diagram with untranslated labels, but these are quibbles. Jahar reaches beyond the amyloid hypothesis. There is room here for tau tangles, the second abnormal protein in Dieter's brain, and especially for problems with inflammation, infection, and microglia, brain immune cells. One might also mention the idea that disrupted brain energy supplies may be a factor, uncontrolled diabetes and cardiovascular problems, which affect the brain's access to sugar and oxygen, significantly boost the risk of getting dementia. Notwithstanding the recent hype around anti-amyloid drugs, such as lecanemab, the immune and energy supply routes offer hope of faster progress than we have seen in years, not least because drugs to treat inflammation, cardiovascular disease and diabetes are well-established and relatively cheap. Some, including the diabetes drug metformin, are already being trialled as candidates for slowing cognitive decline. Elkins' The Alzheimer's Diaries exemplifies perhaps the commonest reaction to dementia science, using it for validation and hope. Having conceptualised the disease as picking off Nick's brain cells one by one, the author just wants scientists to find a way to stop it doing to others what it is doing to him. She does mention risk factors, most of which her husband, a healthy vegetarian non-smoker, seems not to have had and at one point she argues that knowing about risks in advance isn't helpful, since there's no cure. At another, however, she learns that earlier retirement, which her husband took in midlife, taking on her administrative and home support, is associated with higher risk. All the more reason she decides to keep working for as long as possible, 
confirmation bias? Maybe, but science, with all its promises, can't do much for the man she loves, so why not use it as a prop instead? Dementias such as Alzheimer's may be medical conditions in which accumulating brain damage causes the symptoms, but they're much more than that, because of how they affect the sense of self, effects reported by people with dementia, not just those around them. The impact on selfhood is variable and contested, as the language shows, in clinical settings, loved ones, people with dementia, charges, clients, patients, bed blockers, in research, subjects or participants. Some terms emphasise the individual's continuing agency and personhood, some their growing dependency, some their suffering, some the loss of self and agency. Jahar notes Peter Singer's claim that personhood is erased by advanced dementia and his advocacy of euthanasia, given pre-consent in a living will. Jahar disagrees, citing Tom Kitwood, who thinks that much of what we feel a person to be is preserved, beliefs and values, feelings, relationships. Certainly, as Keeper argues, human minds don't easily relinquish the idea that their loved one is still there. We are built to see people, not sick brains, even when the sickness is rupturing long-held roles and relationships. When the carers she describes tell themselves or are told it's not the person, it's the illness, or they're sick, they can't help it, those words bear on feelings that come into play only when personhood is assumed. We don't know what it's like to experience advanced dementia that non-verbal born from which no messages return. Nor can we yet scan a brain for personhood because we don't know what to look for. So why not bet, like Pascal, and assume it? If we're right, treating everyone with dementia like a person is the moral thing to do, and we avoid the perils of dehumanisation. If we're wrong, we keep the higher care costs, but may nevertheless cause less trauma overall, not least by helping carers feel they did their best. We do know that carers' identities can be threatened, especially those grounded in work. Elkin and Jahar cling to their day jobs as others cling to faith, and they struggle with the dissonance. Elkin is aghast at being labelled a carer and finding herself, as she puts it, mopping up dollops of excrement. I can hardly believe I'm doing it. Jahar too feels the comfort zone of his professional life being put under pressure, not least from his father's expectation that children should care for aged parents. His father's long-suffering live-in carer, Harwinder, reproves him and his brother for not spending more time with their dad. Jahar accepts this. We're probably a 25 out of a 100, he admits, adding, some sons keep their parents in their own home. On that count, Harwinder fires back, you are a zero. Even in this age of individualism, social norms and expectations affect most of what we do and how we feel about it. Reason itself, that pinnacle of human brilliance, evolved not to give us logic and mathematics, but to help us rub along with other humans. As group members, we share two strong assumptions, that most people tell the truth and that other members have the right to ask us to explain ourselves and we them. People who give explanations deemed reasonable, ones that fit with what we already know, and cite motives and beliefs we recognise, make sense to us. 
they feel similar to us and more predictable, likeable, truthful and trustworthy than people who won't or can't explain themselves. Dementia wrecks the ability to explain while generating behaviours that demand explanation. Repetition irritates, forgetfulness disrupts, paranoia hurts, and false beliefs fiercely defended can alarm and infuriate carers and endanger the believer. When brain regions can't maintain their connections, experience splinters, and reality makes less sense to the self and others. It is hard to explain what you don't understand, especially when the power to speak, gesture and express emotions is also diminishing. Small wonder that carers and those they look after can run the gamut of negative emotions, extreme hesitancy and uncertainty, frustration verging on fury, contempt and pity, terror and guilt. Carers who are used to experiencing mutual comprehension find themselves having to redefine their loved one as babyish or sick, or even possessed by an evil spirit. This last turns the tendency to personify to the carer's advantage. Elkin uses it brilliantly, venting her feelings on Ms. Alzheimer's, a safer target than her husband, and a more psychologically convincing one than his dying brain cells. Even when love is plentiful, care can slip. Guilt is a key theme in all three books. Yet stereotypes of the ideal carer, kind and patient, never a bad thought or action, rarely acknowledge how much energy good care demands. Stress and exhaustion affect brain areas engaged by social interactions, reducing the power to see others as people. They suppress empathy. Dehumanization begins as self-protection, a brain's attempt to save energy. Caring for carers means giving them enough resources to ward off this desperate shutdown. How do we best deliver those resources and pay for them? We start, as Susan Elkin, Sandeep Jahar and Dasha Keeper have done, by saying why they are needed. You are listening to The TLS, where Kathleen Taylor writes The Limits of Love, Human Personality Under Assault from Advanced Dementia from the 2nd of June, 2023 issue.